This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Happy to have you here every single weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our home online is GuyBensonShow.com. Many ways to listen live there or to catch the free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be joining Special Report tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer and company. That's in the 6 p.m. Eastern Time hour, Fox News Channel. See you there. On the show here today, radio side, we'll get to our first guest in just a moment. Later, we will have General Jack Keane reacting to the president's speech on Afghanistan, which apparently we're being told will involve a history lesson on Afghanistan. Among other points, the president will be addressing the nation about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was scheduled to be completed by a deadline of today. In fact, just a few minutes from right now, 3.29 p.m. Eastern Time, the U.S. got out 24 hours early, which raised a lot of questions among a lot of people. And some of the spin and excuses being made about the disastrous execution of this withdrawal are just breathtaking. We have more sound bites to play for you. But President Biden is going to talk to the country about this conclusion of the Afghan war, which was announced while we were on the air yesterday. He was supposed to speak at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That got delayed to 2.45 p.m. Eastern Time. Now we've been told that has been delayed again. Obviously, he's not speaking yet, so he's tardy, and we're not sure when we're going to hear from him. Likely this hour. And... This seems in the scheme of things to be a very small quibble. But when you've made such a momentous decision and you've executed so mind-bogglingly poorly, to be so consistently late for your comments about these things with delay after delay, it does not necessarily indicate a tight-run ship run by the adults in charge, as they like to consider themselves. But when the president speaks, we'll bring that to you. Fox News alert as we begin the show, as we do every day with statistics, the coronavirus case count in the United States, 39.1 million. That is cumulative over the pandemic. It's also a low ball number by a long shot. The death toll from COVID in the U.S. now 639,081. We'll have more on COVID later in today's program. I have a few thoughts and updates on that front, even as we focus on Afghanistan. The Dow is down 52 points at this hour to 35,348. And we have just about 50 minutes left in the trading day. With that, let's get to the Honorable Nikki Haley. 
former governor of South Carolina, former U.S. ambassador to the, uh, to the United Nations, also founder of Stand for America PAC. And, Ambassador, it's good to have you back here on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Guy. It's great to be with you. Well, as we await President Biden, who's going to speak at some point here, before I get into some of the comments being made by spokespeople and members of his administration today, I just want to get your overall reaction to this withdrawal from Afghanistan, the decision to get out even ahead of the Taliban deadline, and strikingly to do so with at least hundreds, it looks more like thousands of Americans still stuck, stranded, abandoned in Afghanistan, Tens of thousands of our allies also stranded in now a Taliban-controlled country. The president promised very recently and repeatedly that would not be the case. It is the case. Your reaction? You know, I'm just shocked. It's like President Biden cares more about what the Taliban thinks than what Americans think. I mean, here is the wife of a combat veteran who served in Afghanistan. I mean, I'm watching him and all of the other veterans who have sacrificed and their families have sacrificed over 20 years to see that, you know, last service member get on that plane, that goes against everything about what the military code is, which is you never leave an American behind. And we left hundreds. And I was listening to Secretary Blinken say yesterday, you know, we have less than 200 Actually, maybe even just a hundred Americans left. One left is too many. We don't do that. That goes against everything we believe in. I'm thinking about what our allies are thinking right now, where NATO is actually thinking about doing things without the U.S. for the first time. We never thought that would happen, where we've literally opened the door for China and Russia to get anything and everything they've ever wanted. We've emboldened Iran. We gave literally a moral victory to the jihadist movement, which isn't just a big deal in Afghanistan. This is what's going to allow them to recruit all over the world. It's what's going to lead into these lone wolf situations out there. It's it's pretty much as bad as it gets. It really is. You add, you know, you know, dead servicemen to that. You add the fact that we lost a lot of the Afghan innocent lives to that and and that our you know, interpreters that saved people's lives are still there. And we made a promise to them. My husband and every other member who served there, they were kept alive because of those interpreters, because of those people that helped. And we just looked them in the eye and said, we won't forget you. We will take care of you. And we left them. Yep. And by the way, the number that they're citing, 250 or 100, whatever the number is that they say of U.S. citizens who are left in Afghanistan, I don't believe them. I don't think that they have credibility on any of these statistics. The numbers have been very opaque. We'll get into some of that a little bit later on. But the New York Times reporting just today, there are believed to be thousands of Americans who are green card holders and legal residents who are stranded in Afghanistan. And as you point out, Madam Ambassador, tens of thousands of Afghans who helped us. And we could play you a montage. We have one, a minute and a half of all the times Joe Biden, the president, has promised that we would not leave Americans behind, we would not leave Afghan allies behind, making that solemn oath over and over again, including just a matter of days ago. Here's just one quick example of it, that George Stephanopoulos interview on August 18th, cut 13. Are you committed to making sure that the troops stay until every American who wants to be out yes. is out? Yes. And if there American force, if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. 
That's just a lie. We didn't stay. It didn't happen. And now I see Ned Price, who's the spokesman at the State Department, he sent a tweet earlier referring to, quote, those who stayed as if they had a choice about it, Ambassador Haley. And there are some people who are out there pushing back very hard against that, I think, pathetic framing. Mary Beth Long is a former defense official. She was on CNBC explaining why that is such a fallacy. Cut 14. Last night, dozens and dozens of U.S. citizens went to the airport. They were called to go there, and the gates never opened. Those U.S. citizens were left hanging this morning, circling the gates, circling the airport, unable to do much of anything. Uh, That isn't the promise that Americans expect. Clarissa Ward at CNN shared another story along these lines. Cut 23. I spoke earlier on in the day with a family of four from Houston, Texas. They told me they had been going to the airport for two weeks, trying desperately to get out. They all have American passports. They had gone to Afghanistan to visit the mother's family. And essentially the issue was they couldn't get past the Taliban. They were in touch with the U.S. military. The military was trying to facilitate their departure. And it didn't happen. Americans have been left behind, and the spokesman at the Pentagon under the Biden administration says, well, we wish it didn't happen this way, but our hands were tied. Cut 16. There's heartbreak, sure. We, we, we certainly would have liked and preferred to get more people out if we could, but the time just wasn't there. We would have liked and preferred to get more people out if we could, but the time wasn't there. Ambassador Haley, the timeline was arbitrary. The president is not a bystander. And we left 24 hours early. I mean, that's just another piece of this. Your response to what we just heard there from the Biden administration. It's just pathetic. It's pathetic on every level, because what we know is there are a lot of Americans that are nowhere near that Kabul airport. They are um, in other areas. When they go to checkpoints, their passports are being taken. Their green cards are being taken. They're not being allowed to go through. But, you know, Guy, the thing is, what really shows Um, the moral clarity of of the man that Joe Biden has become is his own, an Afghan interpreter um, serviceman member that actually went and rescued him and John Kerry in 2008 in Afghanistan when they needed help. He went and rescued them in 2008, and he is now begging Biden to save him and his four children out of Afghanistan from the Taliban threat. If he will leave someone who saved his life in 2008, he's not going to care about any other Afghan, um, you know, interpreter or someone that helped our soldiers. He certainly doesn't care about the Americans that are on the ground. And every other ally that we have are saying if he'll do this to his own people, why should Taiwan feel comfortable right now? Why should Ukraine feel comfortable right now? Why should Israel in any way feel stable right now? South and Korea. It's the reason why South Korea, all of those, Japan, Australia, India, you look at all these countries, they're looking at this and everybody's shocked. But the worst part is that Americans are shocked. Americans are looking at our own commander in chief and saying, Okay, what is wrong? Either no one on his team is stepping up to him and saying, this is all wrong. We've got to do something about this. Or he's not thinking clearly. Both of those scenarios are dangerous. 
both of those will continue to make us less safe. But I don't know what he says to the American public today. None of us wants a history lesson. We've lived it. We've lived the last 20 years. And I'll tell you, the military men and women certainly don't want a history lesson. What they want to know is that their service and their sacrifice mattered. And it did. But we now are sitting there 20 years later in the same situation, if not worse, than we were in 2001. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And now we've got to figure out how we're going to get out of this and how we're going to fix this. And that story that you referenced is a Wall, is a Wall Street Journal report out just today. We will read at some length from that story later on in the show. I want people to hear it. This not just broad betrayal of thousands of people, the specific betrayal of a man that helped Joe Biden when he was stuck and stranded. He went to go rescue Biden. And I know Biden's supposed to have this superpower of empathy, and I don't see where the empathy is here if that man can be left behind. And by the way, because I interjected with the example of South Korea and some of our allies who are probably feeling more jittery these days than they were even a few weeks or months ago, the Wall Street Journal also reported yesterday, we didn't have time to get to it, but the journal reported that it is now believed that the North Koreans have started up one of their nuclear reactors again, which makes the point that you just made, Madam Ambassador, weakness in America begets threats and bad behavior from bad actors. And it can sometimes have a snowball effect. And the last thing we need is another crisis on top of this one and the border crisis. I mean, they seem to be racking up here during the Biden administration. I want to play you another soundbite. This is from John Kirby at the Pentagon, spokesman in the Biden administration. And I think it's very interesting to hear the phrasing that he used. This is today talking about stranded Americans, trying to sort of downplay the problem that we've let and left behind hundreds, if not thousands of Americans. Here's what he said in Cut 21 on MSNBC. So what does that look like? How does diplomacy get those people out of the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan? It's not completely unlike the way we do it elsewhere around the world. I mean, we have uh, Americans that get stranded in, in, uh, in countries all the time. So I'm so old, Madam Ambassador, that I remember when the White House spokeswoman scolded Peter Ducey for using the word stranded. Now we have stranded tens of thousands of people. We've abandoned them. And the Biden team is now embracing the word stranded and saying, hey, well, look, there are Americans who get stranded all the time. I'm sort of amazed that they're trying to compare this situation, Afghanistan, the Taliban, the situation and context in which this stranding has occurred, and shifting from how dare you use that word, saying, oh, yeah, but the stranding, it wasn't unexpected. It happens all the time. It's not really a big deal. I, I keep using this word. It is insulting, the spin that they keep attempting. Well, and not only that, I can tell you when I was at the United Nations, I did what Kirby said. You know, we went from military, you know, he's saying we're going from a military situation to a diplomatic situation. I was the diplomatic situation of helping people that were stranded. You know what they were called? Hostages. That's what they were called. This is a hostage situation now because now we are in the scenario of having to beg a terrorist organization to let our Americans come home. Or bribe. You can't make light of that. That's exactly right. We're either going to end up having to pay them, which, by the way, we gave them billions of dollars in equipment and yep. ammunition as a housewarming gift. To, to have to sit there. I mean, I'm, lo I'm speaking with my husband the other day. We're looking at a video 
And he said, Nikki, those are our weapons. He's looking at the Taliban in this video. He goes, those are our weapons. And they were sitting in our U.S. vehicles. And the worst part was they were wearing our American uniforms. And, guy, they were making fun of us. Like, how does a veteran look at that and stomach it? How do they do that? And then on top of that, you say you're going to use diplomatic means to get these people out with a terrorist organization that, by the way, allowed an ISIS member to get through the gates that killed 13 soldiers. That's about as much as you can trust the Taliban. Yep. And that the, bad. the diplomatic operation is going to be especially difficult when you have no operating embassy because the embassy is now closed and all of our personnel are gone. Something that the president and the secretary of state said wouldn't happen just a few weeks ago. And now it has. Again, the, the credibility factor is basically zero here at home and abroad. And it's incredibly dangerous. And it's a moment of national shame. Nikki Haley was the governor of South Carolina, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Her group now is Stand for America PAC. We so appreciate your time. Looking forward to next time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Guy. Take care. Nikki Haley on The Guy Benson Show, which returns after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans. While the military evacuation is complete, the diplomatic mission to ensure additional U.S. citizens and eligible Afghans who want to leave continues. I'm Guy Benson, Fox News Alert. That was General Kenneth McKenzie yesterday. The President of the United States is now addressing the country. Let's listen live. did it today. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravely, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. For weeks, they risked their lives to get American citizens, Afghans who helped us, citizens of our allies and partners and others on board planes and out of the country. And they did it facing a crush of enormous crowds seeking to leave the country. And they did it knowing ISIS-K terrorists, sworn enemies of the Taliban, we're lurking in the midst of those crowds. And still. All right, we are up on a break. We will pick. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Up the president's remarks after this break, President Biden addressing the withdrawal in Afghanistan. He opened with the words extraordinary success. Unbelievable. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. GuyBensonShow.com We're back on The Guy Benson Show, Fox News Alert. President Biden is addressing the nation on Afghanistan. During the break, he said a number of breathtaking, astonishing things. He's treating this as a victory lap. He is defiant. Let's listen live. Sign an agreement with the Taliban to remove U.S. troops by May the 1st, just months after I was inaugurated. It included no requirement that Taliban work out a cooperative government arrangement with the Afghan government. But it did authorize the release of 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders, among those who just took control of Afghanistan. And by the time I came to office, the Taliban was in its strongest military position since 2001, controlling or contesting nearly half of the country. The previous administration's agreement said that if we stuck to the May 1st deadline that they had signed on to leave by, the Taliban wouldn't attack any American forces. But if we stayed, all bets were off. So we were left with a simple decision. Either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan, or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice, between leaving or escalating. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit. The decision to end the military lift operations at Kabul airport was based on the unanimous recommendation of my civilian and military advisors the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all the service chiefs and the commanders in the field. Their recommendation was that the safest way to secure the passage of the remaining Americans and others out of the country was not to continue with 6,000 troops on the ground in harm's way in Kabul, but rather to get them out through non-military means. In the 17 days that we operated in Kabul, after the Taliban seized power, we engaged in an around-the-clock effort to provide every American the opportunity to leave. Our State Department was working 24-7, contacting and talking, and in some cases, walking Americans into the airport. Again, more than 5,500 Americans were airlifted out. And for those who remain, we will make arrangements to get them out if they so choose. As for the Afghans, 
We and our partners have airlifted 100,000 of them. No country in history has done more to airlift out the residents of another country than we have done. We will continue to work to help more people leave the country who are at risk. We're far from done. For now, I urge all Americans to join me in grateful prayer for our troops and diplomats and intelligence officers who carried out this mission of mercy in Kabul and a tremendous risk with such unparalleled results. An, air, an airlift that evacuated tens of thousands to a network of volunteers and veterans who helped identify those needing evacuation, guide them to the airport, and provided them for their support along the way. We're going to continue to need their help. We need your help, and I'm looking forward to meeting with you. And to everyone who is now offering or who will offer to welcome Afghan allies to their homes around the world, including in America, we thank you. I take responsibility for the decision. Now, some say we should have started mass evacuation sooner. And couldn't this have been done, have been done in a more orderly manner? I respectfully disagree. Imagine if we'd begun evacuations in June or July, bringing in thousands of American troops and evacuating more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war. There still would have been a rush to the airport, a breakdown in confidence and control of the government, and it still would have been very difficult and dangerous mission. The bottom line is there is no evacuation, evacuation from the end of a war that you can run without the kinds of complexities, challenges, and threats we faced. None. There are those who would say we should have stayed indefinitely for years on end. They ask, why don't we just keep doing what we were doing? Why do we have to change anything? The fact is, everything had changed. My predecessor had made a deal with the Taliban. When I came into office, we faced a deadline, May 1. The Taliban onslaught was coming. We faced one of two choices, follow the agreement of the previous administration and extend it to have or extend to have more time for people to get out or send in thousands of more troops and escalate the war to those asking for a third decade of war in Afghanistan. I ask, what is the vital national interest? In my view, we only have one to make sure Afghanistan can never be used again to launch an attack on our homeland. Remember why we went to Afghanistan in the first place? Because we were attacked by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda on September 11th, 2001. And they were based in Afghanistan. We delivered justice to bin Laden on May 2nd, 2011, over a decade ago. Al-Qaeda was decimated. 
I respectfully suggest you ask yourself this question. If we'd been attacked on September 11, 2001, from Yemen instead of Afghanistan, would we have ever gone to war in Afghanistan? Even though the Taliban controlled Afghanistan in the year 2001? I believe the honest answer is no. That's because we had no vital interest in Afghanistan other than to prevent an attack on America's homeland and their fr our friends. And that's true today. We succeeded in what we set out to do in Afghanistan over a decade ago. Then we stayed for another decade. It was time to end this war. This is a new world. The terror threat has metastasized across the world, well beyond Afghanistan. We face threats from al-Shabaab in Somalia, al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria and the Arabian Peninsula, and ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates across Africa and Asia. The fundamental obligation of a president, in my opinion, is to defend and protect America. Not against threats of 2001, but against the threats of 2021 and tomorrow. That is the guiding principle behind my decisions about Afghanistan. I simply do not believe that the safety and security of America is enhanced by continuing to deploy thousands of American troops and spending billions of dollars a year in Afghanistan. But I also know that the threat from terrorism continues in its pernicious and evil nature. But it's changed, expanded to other countries. Our strategy has to change, too. We will maintain the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and other countries. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. We have what's called over-the-horizon capabilities, which means we can strike terrorists and targets without American boots on the ground, or very few if needed. We've shown that capacity just in the last week. We struck ISIS-K remotely days after they murdered 13 of our service members and dozens of innocent Afghans. And to ISIS-K, we are not done with you yet. As Commander-in-Chief, I firmly believe the best path to guard our safety and our security lies in a tough, unforgiving, targeted, precise strategy that goes after terror where it is today, not where it was two decades ago. That's what's in our national interest. And here's a critical thing to understand. The world is changing. We're engaged in a serious competition with China. We're dealing with the challenges on multiple fronts with Russia. We're confronted with cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. We have to shore up America's competitive to meet these new challenges in the competition for the 21st century. And we can do both. Fight terrorism and take on new threats that are here now and will continue to be here in the future. And there's nothing China or Russia would rather have, would want more, 
in this competition in the United States to be bogged down another decade in Afghanistan. As we turn the page on the foreign policy that has guided our our nation the last two decades, we've got to learn from our mistakes. To me, there are two that are paramount. First, we must set missions with clear, achievable goals, not ones we'll never reach. And second, we must stay clearly focused on the fundamental national security interest of the United States of America. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. We saw a mission of counterterrorism in Afghanistan, getting the terrorists and stopping attacks, morph into a counterinsurgency, nation building, trying to create a democratic, cohesive, and united Afghanistan, something that has never been done over many centuries of Afghan's history. Moving on from that mindset and those kind of large-scale troop deployments will make us stronger and more effective and safer at home. And for anyone who gets the wrong idea, let me say clearly, to those who wish America harm, to those who engage in terrorism against us or our allies, know this, the United States will never rest. We will not forgive we will not forget. We'll hunt you down to the ends of the earth, and we will, you will pay the ultimate price. And let me be clear. We'll continue to support the Afghan people through diplomacy, international influence, and humanitarian aid. We'll continue to push for regional diplomacy engagement to prevent violence and instability. We'll continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, especially women and girls, as we speak out for women and girls all around the globe. And I've been clear that human rights will be the center of our foreign policy. But the way to do that is not through endless military deployments, but through diplomacy, economic tools, and rallying the rest of the world for support. My fellow Americans, The war in Afghanistan is now over. I'm the fourth president who has faced the issue of whether and when to end this war. When I was running for president, I made a commitment to the American people that I would end this war. Today, I've honored that commitment. It was time to be honest with the American people again. We no longer had a clear purpose in an open-ended mission in Afghanistan. After 20 years of war in Afghanistan, I refused to send another generation of America's sons and daughters to fight a war that should have ended long ago. After more than $2 trillion spent in Afghanistan, the cost that researchers at Brown University estimated would be over $300 million a day for 20 years in Afghanistan, for two decades. Yes, the American people should hear this, $300 million a day for two decades. You take the number of $1 trillion, as many say, 
That's still $150 million a day for two decades. What have we lost as a consequence in terms of opportunities? I refuse to continue the war that was no longer in the service of the vital national interest of our people. And most of all, after 800,000 Americans serving in Afghanistan, I've traveled that whole country, brave and honorable service. After 20,744 American servicemen and women injured, and the loss of 2,461 American personnel, including 13 lives, lost just this week. I refuse to open another decade of warfare in Afghanistan. We've been a nation too long at war. If you're 20 years old today, you've never known an America. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Peace. So when I hear that we could have, should have continued the so-called low-grade effort in Afghanistan at low risk to our service members, at low cost, I don't think enough people understand how much we have asked. President Biden speaking at the White House. We're up on a hard break. All sorts of reaction to what we are hearing from him upcoming on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's The Guy Benson Show, Fox News Alert. President Biden has just wrapped up his speech at the White House on Afghanistan. He walked away. He took no questions. Among the more notable things that he said, he called the withdrawal mission an extraordinary success. He said that his administration's contingency planning was excellent. Quote, we were ready for what happened. He cast blame on Americans who didn't leave Afghanistan sooner. He said that there is no deadline to get those people out, and we will work diplomatically to try to get those who wish to leave out. He said 90% of Americans who wanted to leave were able to get out. Like, that is an amazing achievement. Remarkably, astoundingly, he said that this evacuation, this withdrawal, could not have been done any better could not have started sooner could not have been more orderly basically a defiant angry often shouting victory lap for president biden more reaction in our next hour coming up on the guy benson show 
new from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle of three. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. That includes access to the free podcast every day. If, for example, you missed Nikki Haley earlier, you can go back and listen to that free of charge on demand. Fox News alert as we begin this hour. The Dow closes down 39 points to 35,360. We are now keeping an eye on the White House press briefing where Jen Psaki will take questions. The president did not take questions following his often angry and defiant speech announcing the conclusion of the war in Afghanistan where he lashed out at critics, he torched straw men left and right, he blame-shifted endlessly while mouthing words about personal responsibility, and he called the withdrawal an extraordinary success of a mission that could not have been done any better. He said starting to evacuate people and personnel sooner would not have worked. And he said that we got 90% of Americans who wanted to leave out of the country and seemed pretty pleased with that. And he hinted that those who remain are at fault for their own situation because of months of warnings to get out, even though, I would remind you, he himself last month said a Taliban takeover was, quote, highly unlikely, and his Secretary of State promised that the embassy would remain open and we would have a robust diplomatic presence. The president said that the drawdown and withdrawal would be orderly. It was not, and now he's claiming it never could have been. And the threat has receded. A lot to digest. We watched a lot of it and listened to a lot of it here live together. And joining me now is General Jack Keane. Retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, I gave a few bullet points of my takeaways from what we just heard from President Biden. You were watching very closely. You just reacted on the news channel moments ago. You have the floor, sir. What do you make of the president's speech? Well, I'm frustrated listening to it. I mean, it was a very defiant speech of the rationale for his making his decision and, and the ensuing debacle that took place uh, after he made that decision and no accountability for or accepting responsibility for any of it. Um, and and it, it continues to have so much misrepresentation of the facts and exaggerations of, of actually what is taking place. That I'm convinced now the, the only way we're going to get to the bottom of, of this debacle and national disgrace that w- that's unfolding before our eyes is, is for some kind of a congressional commission and investigation. And, and it deserves to be done because we need to have some accountability here. But, you know, as, as to a couple of points uh, here, I mean, just starting with the, the decision itself. 
I mean, you can be on either side of this decision, stay or go. And rational people are on both sides of that. But as to his rationale, he, he did blow off the advice of his military generals and his intelligence service people who all wanted to, to keep this small outpost in Afghanistan of 2,500 troops, military bases, and, um, and also our CIA base for all the stated reasons we know to make certain that there was not a safe haven again for terrorists in Afghanistan. Well, given the fact that the Taliban, a, a terrorist organization, is now in control of Afghanistan, there already is now a safe haven for al-Qaeda and for ISIS. That is a fact. That's already been accomplished. Uh, CIA Director Burns said in public testimony, if the Taliban takes over, there will be a significant risk to the American people as a result of a safe haven being established in, in Afghanistan. And remember, the, one of the principal findings of the 9-11 Commission, which they said led to the, the success of the 9-11 attack, is that the United States did not do anything about the safe haven that the al-Qaeda had established in Afghanistan, sheltered and protected by the Taliban, from which they planned the attacks on two embassies in Africa and the USS Cole. And that safe heaven should have been taken down. That is what we have been doing ever since. That's what we did against ISIS. That is what we're doing in East Africa, in Iraq, in Syria today, and also in Yemen. And that is what his advisors wanted to make certain we continue to do uh, in Afghanistan. Then he went after the Trump administration once again uh, and put significant blame on the Trump administration. I, while I disagreed uh, with the Trump negotiations with the Taliban, there were two significant conditions that came out of that that President Biden is just blowing off. He's saying, listen, I was tied down by Trump's decision to get out one May. But Trump's decision to get out one May was conditioned by this. The Taliban had to reject the al-Qaeda, which they did not do. The Taliban had to enter into power sharing with the leaders in Kabul, which they did not do. So if President Trump was reelected, he would have been faced with those conditions not being met. It would have been questionable whether he stayed or left. I don't think he would have just blew off his own conditions, which President Biden has elected to do. He denigrated the Afghan security forces once again. 66,000 of them gave up their lives fighting over 20 years. 45,000 gave up their lives in the last seven years since we stopped our ground combat operations. When he set a date certain of 31 August, and we had to take down the seven military bases and the multiple CIA bases in such a short period of time, we were not able to provide to the ground forces of Afghanistan the air support that they were used to having. And that conditioned them to the point that this is over. We don't have U.S. support. There's no way we're going to be standing up against uh, the, the wherewithal of the Taliban. And they collapsed. To denigrate them as, as not being up to the task after taking 66,000 casualties it is insulting to them and to their leaders. When it comes to the evacuation itself, believe me, the military wanted to begin the evacuation in May. The administration told them no. They would have used Bagram Airfield. 
President Trump is very much, uh, President Biden is very much aware of that. And, and when he was trying to color that by saying, well, even if we began it earlier, we still would have had massive uh, people coming to the airport, etc. Yes, but they weren't going to go through Taliban checkpoints. And the evacuation would have been done at Bagram Airfield, where we can have considerable amount of capacity. We can park 20 C-17s on a tarmac along with fighter aircraft, all the drones we have. It goes 30 miles from one end to the other. It is a huge complex. It would take security forces there certainly to do that. And we had them there and we were contracting out some of those security forces as well as the Afghans protecting us. That evacuation, if it had begun in May, we would be in a much better place than what we are right now. And I'm really frustrated by what actually took place at the uh, Tia airport. Major General Chris Donahue, who has been probably identified as the last soldier out, by the way, in the airborne culture, airborne infantry culture, which I lived most of my life in the United States military, in that culture, the senior leader is the first man jumping out the door of an airplane, leading his soldiers into combat. He's also, by culture and by tradition and custom, the senior leader is the last man to lead. So that is why uh, you saw him there. Now, he's one of the most combat experienced a two-star general this country has ever produced. And I can tell you, without having ever spoken to him about this, he knew full well how to secure that airport, not just from inside a fence line, but the way we any infantry lieutenant colonel would know, we want to do that from outside and make certain that we have a, an outer cordon. The United States military should have been manning the safety checkpoints not the Taliban. Not only did they harass and intimidate and beat our people going through those checkpoints, but they obviously were ineffective as a result of 200 dead and 13 of them are tragically U.S. service personnel. I'm convinced if we had our airborne and marine troopers maintaining those checkpoints with the proper way to check people, with barriers established to protect that uh, ongoing safety check, we would have been able to save lives. And it, it is frustrating to see the president just walk away from that and not as, uh, accepting accountability and responsibility, you know, for what took place. As to the consequences of this, he is trying to convince us that China, Russia, and Iran, uh, somehow this is, uh, it, it, he, his point is, they did not, they, if we had stayed in Afghanistan, they, uh, that, that would have been adverse. The fact is, China, Russia, and Iran are thrilled that the United States is out of southern and central Asia. We had seven military bases and a CIA, base, CIA bases there. That, that was an intelligence gathering factor for what was going on in that region. They are happy that we're out of there, and he's got it completely wrong. Walking out of there, the United States left the region and turned it over to an epicenter for Salafi jihadists, and it will grow, and China will be considerably more ambitious, and through putting its Belt and Road Initiative now into Afghanistan, they want those minerals that are there. They already have copper licenses. They want the uranium, the lithium, and the gold. Russia 
will get more aggressive as a result of this because they see United States weakness in Eastern and Southern Europe. Watch what they'll do in Ukraine and stepping up uh, their aggression. Iran, now we're off their Eastern border, something they have wanted for 20 years. We're gone. What do they, what do they want next? They want us off their Western border. They want us out of Iraq, likely to step up the Iranian proxies inside Iraq, attacking the United States, emboldening Hamas, emboldening Hezbollah to be more aggressive in the region, more aggressive against Israel, more aggressive against our allies in the region. I was called to an embassy of a very prominent ally here in Washington, D.C. And that ambassador asked me straight out, General, are we more at risk now as a result of what has taken place? I said, absolutely. The world just became a more dangerous place, not only for the United States, but certainly for our allied partners. I, I wish the president would just talk straight to the American people. And I'm telling you, why don't we feel good about all of this? We don't feel good because we, we've watched the national disgrace take place. The American people, over 85 percent of them, regardless of what their party affiliation is, Democrat, Republican or independent, all disagree with the fact that we have left American citizens and tens of thousands of Afghan partners in Afghanistan. That is a shameful betrayal and it's a stain on our national honor that will take years uh, for that to evolve where we don't have a lousy taste in our mouth about everything that we see unfolding uh, before our eyes. And he's minimizing the amount of American citizens that are still there. We already know there's a certain percentage of American citizens who don't want to come out because of family ties. That's not the issue. The issue is the hundreds and possibly over a thousand other American citizens who we know are there. We have done nothing about getting citizens out who cannot get the cobble. American citizens who are stranded in other parts of Afghanistan. There's been no provisions made to go get them at a date certain, at a time certain, at a pickup place, and get that job done. I hope we do that clandestinely now, as covert operations, as Paul Wolfowitz recommended in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and give that mission to our CIA to be able to get some of these people out uh, covertly that are so stranded. So I'm, wow. I'm frustrated by what we saw. I celebrate what our, what our soldiers were able to accomplish and what the State Department was able to accomplish under emergency circumstances, certainly get 120,000 people out. That is to be commended. But that so many other things are just flat wrong here. We're going to need to get to the bottom of it at, at some point, and this administration is not going to share with us the details of any of that, in my view. Well, General, I think that is the longest answer that I've ever gotten on this show from a guest, but I didn't want to interrupt you because you had a lot to say point by point based on what we heard from the president. And what's extraordinary is with Americans left behind, thousands of U.S. legal residents, tens of thousands of Afghan allies, all of them were promised that they would get out, that we would bring them to safety. That promise has been betrayed by the president, who then called the withdrawal operation an extraordinary success that could not have been done any better. And it, it just stops you in your tracks to see a president come out and try to frame as a grand achievement and victory what we're watching. 
and gaslight the American people and say none of this could have been done any better or more competently. No one believes that's true. No one believes that's true. But he's hoping that some people might take his word for it. And given what he's done to his own credibility over the last few weeks, I would say good luck with that, Mr. President. General Jack Keane, a retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute of the Study of War, and Fox News Senior Strategic Analyst. General, we appreciate your time. We're up on a break. Thank you for your insights and your passion today. Yeah, thank you so much, Guy. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Fox News alert here on The Guy Benson Show. The president did not take questions after his Afghanistan speech earlier this afternoon that we brought to you live his press secretary is fielding questions in the briefing room right now. Let's dip in. Critical of President Trump's, former President Trump's deal with the Taliban. Given that, I'm wondering if this administration or if this president gave any consideration to not moving on to former President Trump's special envoy to Afghanistan, who stayed on. Uh, look, I think the, the president wanted to be clear about what he was left when he took office, and he laid that out very clearly in his speech. Uh, but just to reiterate, since you gave me a couple an opportunity, a couple of the points. Um, when the president took office, there was a deadline that was just three months away that included for May 1st. That included no requirement that the Taliban work out a cooperative governing agreement with the Afghan government. It did release 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders. So the president was walking into that circumstance. Uh, he wanted to leave Afghanistan. It's a war he has long felt we needed to depart from. He's, feel, he's felt that was long overdue. Uh, but that was the circumstance he walked into. And frankly, there's a little bit of selective memory loss from some of the people who served in the last administration about these circumstances. Ac blaming this on the Trump administration, talking about what Biden inherited, what he walked into. He didn't walk into an August 31st deadline. He didn't walk into a situation where he had no options as a commander-in-chief, and he didn't walk into the shambolic fiasco and debacle of a withdrawal that he just oversaw due to horrifically bad planning, which now he says, with a straight face, was an extraordinary success. We'll monitor this. Come back with a story you need to hear on The Guy Benson Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We're back here on The Guy Benson Show. And I want to bring you a story that broke in the Wall Street Journal today. As we talk about hundreds of Americans left behind, or is the real number, thousands. We'll get into the math on that in the next segment. Then we talk about tens of thousands of SIV holders or Afghan allies, interpreters, etc. being left behind. A shattered American promise. A shattered presidential vow. 
and it may feel a little bit abstract. This Wall Street Journal story is not abstract. It is specific. It is personal. And it involves Joe Biden himself. And there have been a lot of news reports and stories and videos and accounts that have been gripping and disturbing in recent weeks. Sometimes you just read something that makes your blood run cold, and this is one of them. Try to put yourself in this man's shoes, if you possibly can. And even if you're someone who thinks that the outrage over this is all overhyped, Biden's doing the best he can, maybe it didn't go perfectly, but that was to be expected. We know the talking points. Try to put yourself in this man's shoes. Reading from the journal today. 13 years ago, Afghan interpreter Mohammed helped rescue then-Senator Joe Biden and two other senators stranded in a remote Afghanistan valley after their helicopter was forced to land in a snowstorm. Now Mohammed is asking President Biden to save him. Hello, Mr. President. Save me and my family. Mohammed, who asked not to use his full name while in hiding, told the Wall Street Journal as the last Americans flew out of Kabul on Monday. Don't forget me here. Mohammed and his four children are hiding from the Taliban after his years-long attempt to get out of Afghanistan got tangled in bureaucracy. They are among countless Afghan allies who were left behind. President Biden promised them that he wouldn't do that, that America wouldn't do that. We owed them a rescue. We owed them an evacuation. A basically competent and orderly evacuation plan with all the contingency planning they always tell us about, if they had done even a modicum of the work that was required, men like this and their families would already be out. They would have been gone months ago, weeks ago, at least within the last few days. But that is not the case, including this man named Mohammed, who personally helped rescue Joe Biden. The Wall Street Journal story continues, flashing back to the details. Mohammed was a 36-year-old interpreter for the U.S. Army in 2008, when two U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopters made an emergency landing in Afghanistan during a blinding snowstorm. On board were three U.S. Senators, Mr. Biden, the Delaware Democrat, John Kerry of Massachusetts, and Chuck Hagel, Republican of Nebraska. And there's a photo here in front of a helicopter, and there's Uncle Joe, big smile. One of his saviors, this interpreter, a few of the people who rescued them standing with these senators, with the snow obscuring the camera lens a little bit. That was from 2008. That photograph accompanies the Wall Street Journal story, which continues. As a private security team with the former firm Blackwater and U.S. Army soldiers monitored for any nearby Taliban fighters, the crew sent out an urgent call for help. At Bagram Airfield, Mohammed jumped in a Humvee with a quick reaction force from the 82nd Airborne Division and drove hours into the nearby mountains to rescue them. That short paragraph alone reminds us of a few things. The army was looking for nearby Taliban fighters because the Taliban is our enemy and would have sought to kidnap and or kill these stranded American senators. 
And the rescue team, including this man, Mohammed, was deployed from Bagram Airfield, which was abandoned, mystifyingly, abandoned, before the evacuation and airlift. That was a choice made by the Biden administration. And Mohammed jumped into a Humvee, and what are the chances that that Humvee is now actually in the possession of the Taliban today? Probably pretty high. Based on that New York Times report we referenced yesterday, thousands of Humvees, American Humvees, are now Taliban Humvees. The story continues. Mohammed spent much of his time in a tough valley where the soldier said he was in more than 100 firefights with them. This was over the course of his assistance to the United States. He was in 100 firefights alongside our guys against the Taliban for years, serving faithfully as an interpreter. Quote, his selfless service to our military men and women is just the kind of service I wish more Americans displayed. Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Till wrote in June to support Mohammed's application for a special immigrant visa. The application became stuck after the defense contractor he worked for lost the records he needed for his application. So the bureaucracy already failed this guy. Then the Taliban seized Kabul on August 15th. Like thousands of others, Mohammed tried his luck by going to the Kabul airport gates, where he was rebuffed by U.S. forces. We sent him out. We rejected him. Mohammed could get in, they told him, but not his wife or their children. Army veterans called lawmakers and issued dire appeals to the U.S. and officials here for help. Quote, if you can help only one Afghan, choose Mohammed, wrote Sean O'Brien, an Army combat veteran who worked with him in Afghanistan in 2008. He's earned it. A White House official declined to comment saying the administration couldn't discuss individual cases for confidentiality reasons. Amazing. They don't want to discuss this. It's for Muhammad's own good, you have to understand. They're looking out for him by not commenting on this story, which is now in the Wall Street Journal, about a man that they have condemned to be abandoned in Afghanistan, a country now completely overrun by the enemy, that we know has been hunting down and killing people like Muhammad. We promised that this would not happen. And now it's happening. And this man is just one of tens of thousands in this category. The fact that he was involved in so many firefights and the fact that he was so heroic might make him an exceptional example, especially considering his personal interaction rescuing Joe Biden, of all people, in Afghanistan years ago. But the absolute terror that he's now feeling as he begs the Biden White House not to forget him and completely abandon him and his family and his children, that is outrageously and disgracefully common today in Afghanistan. Wall Street Journal says, during the 2008 presidential campaign, Mr. Biden, who was then running for vice president, often spoke of the helicopter incident and the trip as a way of burnishing his foreign policy credentials. So this little mishap, has been used by Joe Biden for political gain here at home. And one of the starring players in the rescue, Mohammed, is now SOL, high and dry, with his frightened family at grave peril in Afghanistan because President Joe Biden, who now has achieved his political dreams, could not be bothered to put together a successful execution plan 
for his Afghanistan withdrawal policy. That is the reality. The story ends with this line. Now Mohammed is in hiding. Quote, I can't leave my house, he said on Tuesday. I'm very scared. When we talk about tens of thousands of U.S. allies, Afghans who helped us put themselves and their families' security in our hands on the line to help us, when we talk about them and say that we owe them something, that we promised them something, that the president made what I keep calling a blood oath to these people, it's not, to repeat, it is not an abstraction. It is real human life. And people, actual people to whom we owe and have a duty to protect, and we're not. I pray that Muhammad gets out, along with his family. He might not. And the fact that this man, who helped save this president back when he was a senator, a politician who has used this exact story on the campaign trail, that this man has been left behind, along with thousands of others, is shameful. And you have the personal tie-in to President Biden. I'd imagine he remembers the story. I'd imagine he remembers this man. In fact, here's Joe Biden in 2008. Ladies and gentlemen, where are we now? Where are we now? And if you want to know where al-Qaeda lives, you want to know where Bin Laden is, come back to Afghanistan with me. Come back to the area where my helicopter was forced down with a three-star general and three United States senators at 10,500 feet in the middle of those mountains. And the White House reaction for now seems to be no comment. Confidentiality, you see. He's begging for help. Hello, Mr. President. Save me and my family. Don't forget me here. That's his quote. Try to picture how you would have felt in his shoes, cowering in your house with your children, knowing who now runs your country, as you received the news that the last U.S. military plane had just taken off, after you had gotten to the airport and been turned away by U.S. soldiers. It is stomach-turning. There is no excuse for this. It did not have to be this way. People like Mohammed should have been at the front of the line, prioritized from day one. If you had even a remotely competent plan in place, you do not. We never did. And the Biden administration and their shameless hacks who are defending this are saying, well, it was kind of a success. Look at all the people we got out. vast majority of whom weren't SIVs or Americans. It's always going to be rough. It's in their best interests. They can still get out, just not with our direct help. Good luck. We have expectations and assurances from the Taliban. Quote, now Mohammed is in hiding. I can't leave my house, he said on Tuesday. Today. This is right now. I'm very scared. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Back on The Guy Benson Show, I mentioned the math about people that we have stranded and abandoned in Afghanistan. Just alluded to it in the last segment. I want to put some meat on the bones there because we asked Steve Hayes about this yesterday. I mentioned I don't really trust the numbers coming out of the administration on this. They say, oh, it's a low hundreds. Like that's some sort of great achievement. The president said we're not going to leave any Americans behind. We're going to keep troops there until we get every American out. And then we just didn't. 
It's not like he said that months ago. He said that a few days ago. And then we just didn't. So low hundreds, they tell us, on U.S. citizens. They're not giving any confirmation on the Afghan allies number, which is perhaps in the fifty to 80,000 range, including Mohammed, the gentleman that we just mentioned at length in the last segment, quoting from that Wall Street Journal story. Then there are permanent U.S. residents and green card holders. The administration has admitted that their count of Americans does not include those people, even though they are Americans. They are legal residents of the United States of America. And a New York Times story out today says that the estimates from refugee experts and others are that there are thousands of those Americans left behind in Afghanistan. Thousands. But I guess they don't count as citizens. And so the Biden administration, with their politicized math, they're not including them in the tally because they want credit for only, quote-unquote, only leaving behind hundreds of Americans. When the real number is thousands, if you include these legal residents, and then tens of thousands if you include the allies to whom we made the same promise to get them out. The same pledge that has been so cravenly and callously violated. But do we believe the hundreds number on U.S. citizens? I really don't. I don't know why we should believe anything coming out of this White House on this subject. If the president is willing to say unequivocally, we will get every American out and we won't leave until we do, and then days later, the exact opposite happens, why should we trust them on anything related to Afghanistan? Matt Lewis, writing at the Daily Beast, has a piece that crystallized my skepticism. This is not just a conspiracy theory on my part, or, oh, he doesn't trust the administration because he's a conservative and they're Democrats. No, this is the crux of it. Lewis writes, a couple weeks ago, the Biden administration was saying there were 10,000 to 15,000 U.S. citizens in Afghanistan. And we repeated that number because that was the number that was out there. As recently as last week, Lewis writes, the Washington Post was citing that number, 10 to 15,000 U.S. citizens. Then all of a sudden, the Biden administration began saying there were just 6,000 U.S. citizens, quote, who wanted to leave. That very strange formulation. As of August 14th, after accounting for the current evacuations, that would mean that just a few hundred Americans are left in Afghanistan. Not everyone is buying it, though, writes Matt Lewis. Michael Pregent, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, a conservative think tank based in D.C., and a former intelligence officer, disputes the administration's numbers. Quote, thousands of Americans remain in Afghanistan that want to leave, he tweeted. So this is his estimate based on his intelligence and what he's seeing. Thousands of Americans remain in Afghanistan that want to leave. This hundreds left is political math. We shouldn't leave one behind, but lying about the numbers abandons hope for thousands of Americans trying to get out, end quote. Lewis writes, I asked Pregent what he meant by political math, and he told me that anyone left behind will be put in the chose-to-stay category. I'm reminded of the undercounting of nursing home deaths and overall deaths in the state of New York under Andrew Cuomo. That undercount was done for political reasons to play down 
a disastrous scandal and series of decisions by the governor in a life-and-death situation. It's hard not to draw a parallel here, where you have the administration cutting legal residents and green card holders out of their politicized math, and these critics are saying they're even downplaying the number of U.S. citizens who have been left behind. They say, oh, well, it's very fluid, and there are some who chose to stay or didn't want to leave, and it's very hard to prove any of it. But Matt Lewis is right to flag this. We flagged it as well, but I wanted to circle back, so to speak. Just within days, the number thrown about was ten to 15,000 U.S. citizens. And then the number went to 6,000 overnight with no explanation. And that became the new baseline from which all the other calculations emanated. What happened to the other four to 9,000 people? Was that an overestimation at the time? Whose estimation was that? Why did it change to 6,000, particularly at that time? Why aren't they counting green card holders among the Americans left behind? Is it because there are thousands of them? Would that be a political decision? These are serious questions, and I suspect as answers are sought, you will get equivocations and slippery evasions from the administration talking about how it's very hard to get a concrete number. I'm sure that's partially true, but their math is highly suspect, and their credibility is shot. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up on this Tuesday. Stay with us. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. It's Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in. Monday through Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, it's the Guy Benson Show, new and fresh each and every day. And if you miss any part of it, the podcast is growing, and we encourage you to check it out. No charge to you. On demand at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your free podcasts. And the happy hour sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, one of our great sponsors, great product as well. It's alcoholic, so it's for 21 years of age listeners or above. Always drink responsibly. Log on to thelongdrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. They're expanding into Michigan. I just got that word. And some rumblings about another upper Midwest state will be joining the Long Drink family soon. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. We have been focused on Afghanistan overwhelmingly now for weeks and for good reason. I don't want to take our eye off the ball when it comes to other issues as well. And one of those issues, of course, is COVID and the reaction to COVID and the responses of some elites and so-called experts and institutions that are mind-bending to me. 
If you're new to the program, you may not know that I have been an advocate of following the science as best we know what that actual science is throughout this pandemic. Before the vaccines, I was encouraging masking, social distancing, stay at home for the period of time where that was what we were told to do. I was not as completely strict as some of the hardcore adherents were, but I did my best to follow the rules and do my part, and I encouraged this audience to do the same. When the vaccines became available, we've had doctors on this show endlessly repeating ad nauseum all the reasons why the vaccines are safe and effective. I talked about my friends and family members getting the vaccine. I talked about how eager I was to get it. And at the first opportunity, when I was eligible in my state, I went and I got the vaccine. Talked about it on air, got the second shot. I have been an advocate. I'm sure some of you appreciate that. I'm sure some of you might be tired of it. But that's just the background. That's where I've come from on all of this. That's the contribution I've tried to make. What I do not have patience for, and I know that many Americans' patience is also growing thin, is when it comes to anti-science, baseless, evidence-free COVID theater and safetyism. This is why I keep flogging the issue of masks in schools, citing the examples and the guidance of the experts and the science and the data in Europe and the UK and elsewhere And comparing that with this blind faith in masks, almost as like this religious trinket, this totem of safety in the United States. And if you don't go along with it and you cite any of the actual evidence and data from other countries that have gone through this experience, you are smeared, you are slimed as anti-science, anti-child and the whole rest of it. You've heard me talk about this. Here's another example that I would say is in this overall category of completely insane, detached from evidence or reality, COVID theater, where there's an arms race, as I've called it before, for some people, especially progressives, to try to one-up each other to demonstrate and preen about how pro-science they are by actually ignoring science. Story comes from Amherst College in Massachusetts. A small, it's a small liberal arts school sort of infamously lefty, as so many universities and colleges are. And Amherst College has announced new protocols on campus. I'm just going to read from a local news story. As the Delta variant continues to plague the nation, Amherst College announced on Tuesday that it has tightened its public health precautions for at least the first two and a half weeks. They're saying it's two and a half weeks. It's temporary. How often do we hear that? But for the first two and a half weeks... Of this fall semester, from move-in through mid-September, there will be new restrictions. The restrictions include indoor double mask mandates, two COVID tests upon arrival, a bi-weekly testing requirement, limits on indoor gatherings, off-campus travel restrictions, and an elimination of in-person dining services. They've closed their dining halls. 
if you read more into the story and more about what's happening at Amherst, they are not allowing students to leave campus to go into town, the neighboring town, to do anything except absolutely essential activities. In addition to the double mask requirement, they also have a new outdoor mask requirement. An outdoor mask requirement. We talked about the governor of Oregon imposing this. There's no science behind this. The CDC doesn't even recommend wearing masks outside for vaccinated people. And that's who we're talking about at Amherst College. Because the school is requiring all students to be vaccinated. They said that they are allowing some exemptions that you have to apply for, but less than 1% of all students have requested an exemption. So you have all faculty, all staff, all students required to be fully vaccinated to set foot on campus. And then when you get to campus, there's double masks required, even if you're vaccinated. You have to be tested regularly, even if you're asymptomatic, have no symptoms at all. What an incredible waste of resources and time. They are limiting gatherings. They're forcing people, as I mentioned, to wear masks outside. They're not allowing students. They're restricting their movements in terms of going to town, going to restaurants, doing anything else. They're not allowed to go into town to dine or get coffee or grab a beer. Not allowed. Due to COVID, supposedly. They're closing down the dining halls. I mean, it is, it is mind-blowing what they're doing at Amherst College, which is a well-regarded so-called potted ivy liberal arts college. And it's a place where the community, you want to talk about herd immunity? The community is 99% plus fully vaccinated by requirement. So they require everyone to get vaccinated. And then you show up and despite being fully vaccinated, you have to wear two masks in class. You have to wear a mask walking around outside. You can't go into town. You have to get tested regularly, even if you have no symptoms. And by the way, these are 18 to 22-year-olds. So this is a group of people who are extremely unlikely to have had a problematically severe case of COVID even before the vaccines. With the vaccines, when you're fully vaccinated and young and healthy, the likelihood of getting hospitalized or dying from COVID when you've got the two shots, it is statistically zero. You're unlikely to have a symptomatic case, let alone a severe one. And yet the powers that be at Amherst College have decided that they want to, in their deep, endless pursuit of safety and supporting so-called science, they want to basically broadcast to the world that they don't believe that the vaccines actually work. Because what else would you do? What would these... How would these requirements and restrictions and mandates look any different in the absence of a vaccine? It's like it makes no difference if you're double vaccinated. With the double masking, outdoor masking, travel restrictions, you can't gather, dining rooms, dining halls closed, all of that stuff, regular testing. That's the type of stuff that a super, super vigilant, officious regime at a university would impose absent successful vaccines. And yet they're doing all of it on top of vaccination. It bears no resemblance to science or reality. None. 
Hundreds of students have actually signed a petition to the administration. I really do not typically, I don't think I ever, as a matter of fact, have recommended an open letter written by college students on any subject. But in this case, it's actually pretty cogent, well-written. They go through and ask a number of questions of administrators, such as this, quote, there's no evidence that suggests that masks should be worn outdoors by vaccinated individuals as transmission outdoors is less than 1%. We ask that you revoke the outdoor mask mandate. They cite a New York Times article entitled A Misleading CDC Number that puts the rate of outdoor transmission at less than 0.1%, stating that there, quote, is not a single documented COVID-19 infection in the world from casual outdoor interaction. As such, an outdoor mask mandate is essentially going against the science that we've observed about the transmission of COVID-19. This is what the students wrote to the faculty, to the administration, along with a number of other questions going through and puncturing the decision-making process and the decisions themselves, which, as these students point out, actually fly in the face of known science. Nate Silver, who's a data guru, throws up his hands. He tweeted, it's pretty insane to put such harsh restrictions in place on a campus where everybody is fully vaccinated. Some people have really lost the plot. And he's getting attacked by the neurotic superstition crowd who believe that every restriction, every mandate is good and necessary. And if you question any of it, even with data and evidence, you are part of the problem and you are anti-science. It's just completely through the looking glass backwards. There's a left-wing Twitter troll who has an anonymous account and a little photo of a dog that's the avatar who responded to nate silver's tweets attacking this for good reason and the response was pulling up a screenshot of tweets that nate silver had published back in march of last year march of 2020 back when we knew nothing about covid in the very early days remember we were flying blind and back then silver was saying hey if you don't really know much Let's defer to the experts. Let's not say much if you're out of your depth and this is not your area of expertise. Like, this was some big gotcha. Of course, many people were like, let's follow the experts back then. We didn't know anything. We know so much more now. There is so much more evidence and data and real-world experience, etc. But this Twitter troll, representing many others in this weird subgroup, who I guess believe in witchcraft as science, and don't believe in science while fetishizing science. It's very strange. He's like, oh, yeah, well, you said follow the experts and that you weren't the one who was going to talk on this stuff back, what, 18, 19 months ago? That's not exactly a great gotcha. It's not a great dunk. Nate Silver responded to that tweet, by the way, with this. Quote, yeah, that was one of the dumbest things I've ever tweeted. Let's just trust the experts is a great slogan. But it's not easy to determine what constitutes expertise in a context like this one. Blind trust in experts probably makes experts perform worse. Ain't that the truth? So you have these policies at Amherst, insane, oppressive. They remind me, actually, of the story we brought to you earlier this year, back in February, where, remember, Cal Berkeley was banning students from exercising outdoors by themselves? which, again, had no semblance of connection to any science that we know about COVID-19. But that's what they did. Safety first. 
No jogging outdoors, kids, or you could be expelled from school. That was Berkeley. This is Amherst. And now Duke. Duke University has implemented an outdoor mask mandate because a number of students and faculty have tested positive for COVID, even though it's a 98% vaccinated campus. Almost all of the positive tests were asymptomatic. If they were symptomatic, they were very mild. You are not going to stamp out COVID forever. You're not. It's an endemic illness. You want to shift it from a pandemic super lethal to one that isn't. That's what the vaccines have done. The vaccines are working at a place like Duke. And yet you get some positive cases. I think it's you know dozens of students and faculty. And even though they are mild or asymptomatic cases, the university, one of the best in the country, prestigious, these are their best and brightest, are saying, oh gosh, now let's do an outdoor mask mandate at Duke. Even though, as the students at Amherst have noted, there's no reason to do that at all based on actual data. I was thinking about going down to Duke for the Northwestern Duke football game in a couple weeks. Last time I was down there for a football game, it was sweltering in the heat at that stadium. Are they going to make me wear a mask over my face outdoors? Based on the new mandate, apparently yes. I don't know if I can do that, honestly. This is COVID theater. It is safetyism. It is not science. In fact, it is contrary to science. And it does feel like there are just people who want to control and restrict, and they will do so eagerly. And that breeds a lot of resentment and mistrust, which is very unhelpful in this context during a pandemic that we can transition out of with vaccines if we just trust the vaccines to work and start to recognize how we have to live our lives with COVID in existence. This is madness. It it's almost feels like mental illness. And it's a mania, a neurosis that's taken root in elite institutions in particular. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, so I want to give you at least something that resembles happy news. We were just talking about COVID theater. In the last segment, here's something that isn't COVID theater. It's the uptick in the vaccination rate of Americans. Washington Post has an analysis about the slow and steady decline of vaccine skeptics. The number of Americans who said that they were unlikely to get a vaccine or would never get a vaccine has decreased from February, which was 36 percent, to just 20 percent of Americans still saying that the percentage who are vaccinated, rising from 13% to now 72%. Now, I hope some of that has to do with persuasion from experts and doctors and others. I think recently, the drop in vaccine skepticism and people going and getting vaccinated has to do with mostly two things. Mandates, 
whether from the government or from employers, but also Delta, the Delta variant and the scary scenes in hospitals across the South with the Delta season or a wave season coming to other parts of the country in the fall and winter. People have seen it, they've been scared by it, and they've gone to get their shots. And I hope more people do that. So in my view, that is a happy development. More people getting vaccinated. I wish some of the elites would treat the vaccines like they are safe and effective and not do what we just talked about in the previous segment. I'm looking at you, Amherst and Duke and others. Get vaccinated. Live your life. That's been our mantra for a while, and it still is here on The Guy Benson Show. Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Earlier in the program, Nikki Haley, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and South Carolina Governor, she joined us to talk about Afghanistan. Here's part of that conversation with Nikki Haley. Before I get into some of the comments being made by spokespeople and members of his administration today, I just want to get your overall reaction to this withdrawal from Afghanistan, the decision to get out even ahead of the Taliban deadline. And strikingly, to do so with at least hundreds, it looks more like thousands of Americans still stuck, stranded, abandoned in Afghanistan. Tens of thousands of our allies also stranded in now a Taliban-controlled country. The president promised very recently and repeatedly that would not be the case. It is the case. Your reaction? You know, I'm just shocked. It's like President Biden cares more about what the Taliban thinks than what Americans think. I mean, here is the wife of a combat veteran who served in Afghanistan. I mean, I'm watching him and all of the other veterans who have sacrificed and their families have sacrificed over 20 years to see that, you know, last service member get on that plane. That goes against everything about what the military code is, which is you never leave an American behind. And we left hundreds. And I was listening to Secretary Blinken say yesterday, you know, we have less than 200, actually maybe even just 100 Americans left. One left is too many. We don't do that. That goes against everything we believe in. I'm thinking about what our allies are thinking right now, where NATO is actually thinking about doing things without the U.S. for the first time. We never thought that would happen, where we've literally opened the door for China and Russia to get anything and everything they've ever wanted. We've emboldened Iran. We gave literally a moral victory to the jihadist movement, which isn't just a big deal in Afghanistan. This is what's going to allow them to recruit all over the world. It's what's going to lead into these lone wolf situations out there. It's it's pretty much as bad as it gets. It really is. You add, you know, you know, dead servicemen to that. You add the fact that we lost a lot of the Afghan innocent lives to that and and that our you know, interpreters that saved people's lives are still there. And we made a promise to them. My husband and every other member who served there, they were kept alive because of those interpreters, because of those people that helped. And we just looked them in the eye and said, we won't forget you. We will take care of you. And we left them. Yep. And by the way, the number that they're citing, 250 or 100, whatever the number is that they say of U.S. citizens who are left in Afghanistan, I don't believe them. I don't think that they have credibility on any of these statistics. The numbers have been 
very opaque. We'll get into some of that a little bit later on. But the New York Times reporting just today, there are believed to be thousands of Americans who are green card holders and legal residents who are stranded in Afghanistan. And as you point out, Madam Ambassador, tens of thousands of Afghans who helped us. And we could play you a montage. We have one, a minute and a half of all the times Joe Biden, the president, has promised that we would not leave Americans behind. We would not leave Afghan allies behind making that solemn oath over and over again, including just a matter of days ago. Here's just one quick example of it, that George Stephanopoulos interview on August 18th, cut 13. Are you committed to making sure that the troops stay until every American who wants to be out is out? Yes. And if there are American forces, if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. That's just a lie. We didn't stay. It didn't happen. And now I see Ned Price, who's the spokesman at the State Department, he sent a tweet earlier referring to, quote, those who stayed as if they had a choice about it, Ambassador Haley. And there are some people who are out there pushing back very hard against that, I think, pathetic framing. Mary Beth Long is a former defense official. She was on CNBC explaining why that is such a fallacy. Cut 14. Last night, dozens and dozens of U.S. citizens went to the airport. They were called to go there, and the gates never opened. Those U.S. citizens were left hanging this morning, circling the gates, circling the airport, unable to do much of anything. Uh, That isn't the promise that Americans expect. Clarissa Ward at CNN shared another story along these lines. Cut 23. I spoke earlier on in the day with a family of four from Houston, Texas. They told me they had been going to the airport for two weeks, trying desperately to get out. They all have American passports. They had gone to Afghanistan to visit the mother's family. And essentially the issue was they couldn't get past the Taliban. They were in touch with the U.S. military. The military was trying to facilitate their departure. And it didn't happen. Americans have been left behind, and the spokesman at the Pentagon under the Biden administration says, well, we wish it didn't happen this way, but our hands were tied. Cut 16. There's heartbreak, sure. We, we, we certainly would have liked and preferred to get more people out if we could, but the time just wasn't there. We would have liked and preferred to get more people out if we could, but the time wasn't there. Ambassador Haley, the timeline was arbitrary. The president is not a bystander. And we left 24 hours early. I mean, that's just another piece of this. Your response to what we just heard there from the Biden administration. It's just pathetic. It's pathetic on every level, because what we know is there are a lot of Americans that are nowhere near that Kabul airport. They are um, in other areas. When they go to checkpoints, their passports are being taken. Their green cards are being taken. They're not being allowed to go through. But, you know, Guy, the thing is, what really shows um, the moral clarity of, of the man that Joe Biden has become is his own, an Afghan interpreter um, serviceman member that actually went and rescued him and John Kerry in 2008 in Afghanistan when they needed help. He went and rescued them in 2008, and he is now begging Biden to save him and his four children out of Afghanistan from the Taliban threat. If he will leave someone who saved his life in 2008, he's not going to care about any other Afghan um, 
you know, interpreter or someone that helped our soldiers. He certainly doesn't care about the Americans that are on the ground. And every other ally that we have are saying if he'll do this to his own people, why should Taiwan feel comfortable right now? Why should Ukraine feel comfortable right now? Why should Israel in any way feel stable right now? South and Korea. It's the reason why South Korea, all of those, Japan, Australia, India, you look at all these countries, they're looking at this and everybody's shocked. But the worst part is that Americans are shocked. Americans are looking at our own commander in chief and saying, okay, what is wrong? Either no one on his team is stepping up to him and saying, this is all wrong. We've got to do something about this. Or he's not thinking clearly. Both of those scenarios are dangerous. Both of those will continue to make us less safe. But I don't know what he says to the American public today. None of us wants a history lesson. We've lived it. We've lived the last 20 years. My full interview with Ambassador Nikki Haley, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is also there every day for free. It's free everywhere. No charge to you, on demand, round the clock. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a little taste of woke tales. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you always for being here. We really do appreciate it. GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Bayer on the panel, 6 p.m. Eastern Time Hour, with reactions to the president and his team and Afghanistan. Of course, that is the dominant story today. That's coming up on the Fox News Channel in the 6 p.m. hour. I want to briefly touch on a story that for some reason keeps going. We keep getting more details, and there are more twists and turns and revelations in the saga that is replacing Alex Trebek on Jeopardy. And I'm not sure how to frame this story without invoking Woke Tales. Woke Tales! So the Wokeness Brigade has really torpedoed a number of leading candidates to host Jeopardy. Mike Richards was the executive producer of the show. He was then selected as one of the two co-hosts for Jeopardy. And I don't have a great deal of investment in this. I'll watch Jeopardy occasionally. I liked Alex Trebek. I hope the show continues to succeed. But Mike Richards, who had executive produced the show, he was selected to be one of the co-hosts. And I guess the two hosts would each take different parts of the schedule. But then it was revealed by journalism, if you want to call it that, that Mike Richards had said some things on a podcast in like 2013. So this was years ago. He was an adult. The comments sort of went viral saying, oh, he had said offensive things or off-color things or objectionable things. It took me a few articles to actually find the context of what he had said. I would maybe have counseled him. Maybe that wasn't the right thing to say in a few of the instances. But to pretend like they were beyond the pale, like you can't have a career anymore level stuff, is crazy. This is, like, not even close. The show, by the way, this podcast, where he said these things years ago, was literally called The Random Show. 
Random spelled R-A-N-D-U-M-B. It's just a throwaway nonsense show. And he said a few throwaway nonsense things, some of which were a little bit objectionable. And they dug these things up and then piled that on a few other controversies involving allegations or whatever. And he then wrote this groveling apology, of course, and stepped down from the co-host role. And it was announced he will just remain on as the executive producer. He'll just stay in the role. But now he's been thrown out of that as well. Because I guess if you said some objectionable things on the Random Show podcast in 2013-2014, and that's enough to cost you the hosting gig, then you can't even have your existing job anymore. There was Ken Jennings, who was the longtime Jeopardy champion. He was apparently in the mix, but some old tweets of his circulated. And he, in a number of ways, was a very sort of hateful left-winger who would engage in all sorts of political vitriol. That bothered some people. He had said some other things that were politically incorrect, and the woke people were mad at him. So he was passed over, despite his apology. The remaining Jeopardy co-host, who has not yet been defenestrated, is Mayim Bialik. Christina, am I saying that name right? She's the Big Bang Theory actress. Yeah, her name is Mayim, and she was also uh, a, a kid star. She had a huge show on NBC primetime called Blossom that I absolutely loved. Okay, she so she's, she's a pretty prominent person she's an actress i guess she's also a scientist she's very smart so she's the other person that was selected but there are journalists now digging through her past trying to find things that are a problem like i guess she said years ago that she had some hesitancy about vaccinating her kids well we'll look at that look and now how can we how can we have so i mean it does it not get exhausting So the saga goes on and on. Bialik has survived so far. Jennings not allowed. Mike Richards in and then out and back to producer. Now out from producer. This is a game show, ladies and gentlemen. A game show host. That's what we're looking for here. A game show host. And yet the woke mob, which gets behind this strain of journalism, which is seek and destroy journalism. Oh, This person got a new job. Oh, this person had something good happen to them. Let's go comb through their lives, even stuff that was done or said years ago, and let's find a way to ruin their life or take away this opportunity. And they call it accountability. You push back against them, the journalists, then it's an attack on journalism. How dare you? As I said, exhausting. And it's not just about wokeness. And about this sort of very, I would say, creepy, ugly desire to take people down, take people out, ruin a moment for people, destroy their livelihoods, sort of snitch culture that goes forever and ever. No grace, no forgiveness, no space for human error, no sense of proportion about what truly is beyond the pale and what isn't. It's just there's there's no perspective at all. And again, the fact that all of this is about the quest for a game show host, 
I think, underscores the absolute preposterous, ridiculous state of affairs of our culture right now. We are not a serious society. The United States of America, and you might say that this is a stretch, but hear me out. The United States of America has abandoned Americans and allies in Afghanistan, life and death. And back on the home front, a bunch of people are screaming at each other about who should be a game show host. The Chinese who are ruthless, the Chinese Communist Party is evil, they're engaged in genocide, they're crushing democracy, they're lying to the world about the pandemic that's killed millions of people around the globe. They are very serious about supremacy and the national interest. And they will use all forms of oppression and coercion to advance those designs. They have to look at us and say these are soft, silly, unserious people. Decline is a choice, and it really feels recently like the United States collectively were holding our hands and choosing to jump together. Let's decline all at once. And if America declines... And if America is no longer the hegemon globally, there's a power vacuum, someone is going to fill it, and we know who that's going to be. So maybe I'm reading too deeply into the Jeopardy kerfuffle, but I do think it's actually illustrative. I think it's a metaphor. Here we are canceling each other and scribbling stories and sharing links constantly about something incredibly unimportant and frivolous and it feels like that's where we are right now and there are a lot of other actors around the world bad actors with bad values who are serious deadly serious about their values and this is what we're wasting our time on and that's part of why I think all the wokeness and the excesses of this stuff drive me so crazy we are consuming ourselves We are consuming ourselves with this BS. And it's going to ruin us. And I don't want us to cede the high ground. Because I want the United States of America and our values to win the day. It's not going to happen this way. It's been a rough, frustrating few weeks. It's probably why... I'm getting this angry about such a stupid story because I think it helps make a broader point. And with that, we are out of time. I'll have to make my thoughts more concise on Special Report coming up in the 6 p.m. hour with Brett Baer. Hope to see you there. Back here on the radio tomorrow, it's The Guy Benson Show. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.